Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. The president of Southern Theological Seminary, Albert Muller, recently wrote, Today's church cannot remain faithful if it tolerates false teachers and leaves their teachings uncorrected and unconfronted. Beware. That's what Jesus says. Beware. It's a simple word. But it is is a word that is meant to get your attention. It's a word that we see on signs. It's a word that you you read, or when you hear it, you know that it's meant to be a warning. It's a word that we are all familiar with. That we need to beware of something. Beware of falling rocks as you drive. You need to pay attention. Beware of moving parts. If you're in the industrial world, you understand what that means, that there are moving parts that can pinch parts of your body off, right? Beware of of welding flash. If you're somebody that's in and around welding, you understand that. Beware of snakes, especially here in the desert this time of year, right? I mean, those of us who like to hike understand that we have to be very careful where we step. Beware of dog. Why? Because that, that booger might bite you. All right, or how about this one? Forget about the dog. For, you know, beware of the owner. All right. Or how about this one? I know we're familiar with that. Is buyer beware. All right? That you're buying something, you better pay attention. You better know what you're getting yourself into, right? The word beware is a warning. It's a warning that there's something that we need to pay attention to. It's something that we need to be mindful of. That there is something that we're about to come in contact with or something we're about to be close to or something that might affect us that is either harmful or injurious or dangerous. The word beware is meant to make us us serious in our observations about circumstances and the the surroundings. You know, we we talk about um, in uh, when it comes to self-defense and when it comes to protecting yourself. We talk about paying attention wherever you go. What do, what do we call that? It's um, um, situational awareness. That's right. It's about being aware. Right? And this is the word that Jesus uses here. Right? It's a word of caution. Jesus uses this word, beware, in his final public teaching, in his final public ministering, he says, beware. And that right there, I don't know about you, if you're paying attention to what's been happening in the story, right? that right there, Jesus making his final public teaching, a warning, that by itself should cause us all to sit up and pay attention to what he's warning about. Because he says, there's something that we need to be aware of. 
This should cause us to open our eyes and become aware that Jesus is drawing our attention to something important here because that's what this text is about. It is a warning. It's a warning for his audience at the time, but it's also a warning for individual believers today and also a warning for the church at large. It's a warning about false teachers because that is who Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking the teachers of the law who act like they're serving God, but in the end, what we'll see is they serve themselves. But before we actually get into the text, let's remember where we are in the narrative because it really influences how we understand the text. We're in the part of, of the Gospel of Mark where everything is moving toward its triumphant conclusion. We are nearing the climax of this conflict. In fact, let me put this in perspective for you. It is still in this text Wednesday of Passion Week, right? And the crowd at the moment loves Jesus. And, and in fact, there's a big crowd around him at the moment as he's teaching people in the temple. But by the very next evening, the very next day, which we would call Thursday evening, but they would call Friday morning because of the way that they count days, Thursday evening, Jesus will be arrested. And then on the following day, Friday morning, the crowd that once celebrated Jesus' his arrival as the Messiah, that crowd that was pleased with him in this moment, that crowd will be shouting, crucify him. You think that your life turns on an instant? <laughs> Can you imagine how fast that happened for Jesus? And as a result of this change, Jesus will be tortured and he will be beaten and he will be nailed to the cross and he will die. He will suffocate to death under the weight of his own body as he's nailed to the cross. And before Friday is over, roughly 48 hours from this moment, Jesus will lay lifeless and broken in a tomb. And then Sunday, Jesus, Sunday morning, Jesus will rise from the dead and he will appear to his disciples. Right? And he will basically show for the world that he is who he claimed to be and that he could do what he promised to do. But this is how close we are now to the end of this story. So we're within 48 hours of the end of Jesus' life before he dies. This is, again, another pivotal moment in the story. And each moment that we experience from here on out, it builds towards this climax. And, and, and each moment has great significance, as we have seen. If you remember, Jesus completed three and a half years of ministry in Galilee. And then at the beginning of the week, he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of clear and specific prophecy confirming that something that people were, were, were thinking about him, that he is indeed the king and the Messiah. He rides triumphantly into the city to the adoring shouts of all of these people, right? The same people, by the way, who will in 48 hours have said crucify him. But for the moment, the king has arrived. And as the king, he comes not to rescue the Israelites, from the Roman captors, and he came not to restore Israel to world superpower status, but instead he came and he pronounced on them judgment. He pronounces judgment on Israel for their failure to be a light to the world. And then he pronounces judgment on the temple, and then he pronounces judgment on the Sanhedrin for their lack of fruit and the lack of their faithfulness as they fail to lead the nation in its mission. And now Jesus in his final public teaching, in this final public teaching, he will issue a warning. He will, he will pronounce judgment upon 
one more group of people, and that is the scribes or the teachers of the law. And that's what he actually does in verse 40. He pronounces a judgment on the teachers of the law. And what we need to, to keep in mind is the fact that, that a few sections ago, right, all of this talk began to be centered around the scribes. If you remember, right, that Jesus was confronted by the Sadducees who came to him to ask him a question to trap him. He answers the question in such a way that everyone sees that he has wisdom. And a scribe, one of these men, these teachers of the law, witnesses this exchange and he recognizes Jesus actually knows his stuff. And so he decides to ask Jesus one of the most hotly debated questions at the time. What is the greatest commandment or what is really the summary of the law? And Jesus says to, to him, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you should love your Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your mind, and all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, in essence, answers by saying, the answer to your question is found in who God is. And in light of who God is, you need to love God supremely, and you need to love what God loves, which is all other people. That is the summary of the law. And the scribe, this teacher, declares that Jesus was right. He is correct. And this summary of the law that Jesus gave is greater than all of their traditions, and all of their rituals, and all of their rites, and all of their rules for their religion. He saw that the external expression of their religion as empty and nothing compared to what Christ is saying here. And Jesus tells this one individual, this scribe, how close he is to the kingdom of God. That he's close because he was beginning to see the truth of the emptiness of their vain religious activities. But then in the very next passage, Jesus goes after the rest of the scribes. He goes on the offensive Right? Because they were, a blind, they were blind to one of the essential truths of the gospel. He asked them, in essence, what is the nature, is, uh, is, is the Christ? What's the nature of the Messiah? And, they, and the answer that the, the, the scribes would have given is, well, he's the son of David. Or in other words, he's, he's a man. Because the scriptures do teach that the Messiah would come from David. And so they just assumed that he would simply be a man and nothing more than a man. Now, he would certainly be charismatic, and he would be you know, an amazing leader, and he would be sent from God by the power of God, but he would still only be a man according to their theology. But Jesus takes them to the scripture, to Psalm 110, a scripture they would have been very familiar with, and he shows them that they have missed the essential truth about who the Messiah is, that Christ, the Christ according to the scriptures, is not just a man. Yes, he is a man in the light of David, but he's not just a man. He is also God incarnate. He is the Lord of all things. The scriptures say, David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, the Messiah is the Lord, God in the flesh. You see, for all of their studying of the scriptures and for all their teaching and all their posturing, they had missed a foundational essential truth about the Messiah. Jesus demonstrates that these experts in the law, in the scripture, these theologians, these highly venerated men, because of their preconceived ideas about the Messiah, had missed the clear teaching about his nature that was clear and plain in the text of scripture. These men, these teachers of the law, were in fact false teachers, and they were leading the people astray. And now Jesus and this text is going to expose them for who they are. He's going to pronounce upon them judgment for what they 
do. So turn with me to Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. And it reads, And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes. And again, what we need to just to be aware of is this is a continuation of the same conversation. Jesus continues to teach the crowd Right? After answering the questions from the Pharisees and the, and the Herodians and ask, answering questions posed by the Sadducees and after answering the question posed by this one scribe, after all of that, Jesus begins to teach the crowd about the nature of the Messiah and who he really is and how the scribes had got it all wrong. And now in this continuing conversation, Jesus issues this warning about the scribes. He says, beware of the scribes. Now, I've read this multiple times, but it only recently did I go, wait a minute, why? I mean, we should look at a text like this and, and, and stop, because this should prompt us to ask that question, why? Why be aware of them? Why beware of the scribes? I mean, we know that the word beware is a warning that somebody might be in danger. Like, beware of dog. Why? Because that dog just might bite you. It's pretty simple. Beware of falling rocks. Why? Because, you know, the rocks might fall on the road or on your car and kill you. The word beware implies danger. It implies a hazard. So, so what is hazardous then about the scribes? What, is, what, what makes them dangerous? That's the question we need to answer. And it's, a, it's an important question that we're actually going to have to dig a little bit to answer. You see, Jesus is telling these men, telling these people that, that these men are dangerous, but he doesn't actually directly answer the question why they're dangerous. He says they're dangerous and he describes their, their, their behavior, but he doesn't actually tell, the, tell you why they're, they're dangerous. This is actually, there's something underlying that's been happening already that we need to see. And so in order to understand why these men are dangerous, we need to remind ourselves of the context here. And the first thing you need to understand is who the scribes really are. This is why Bible study is so important. I mean, we know that they're the teachers of the law. We've, we've covered that, right? And we know that they're the theologians of the time, and that we know that they're experts in the scriptures. But what we need to understand is that they're actually part of the religious leadership in Judea. They are not just academics. They're not just eggheads. They are people that have great influence in Jewish life. They're in leadership. And the other thing that we need to see is that the religious leadership in Judea really falls into two essential groups. You have the Sadducees, as we've talked about, the theological liberals of the time, in essence, because they don't believe in the afterlife, they don't believe in the sovereignty of God, and they really don't care about people. And though that they are powerful, politically speaking, and they wield great influence because of their wealth, they're not really the theological leaders of the common people. Most people don't follow these men theologically. They don't identify with the Sadducees. Not to mention the common people didn't even like these people. Right? And, and, and the, the Sadducees didn't look for the Messiah to come. They weren't looking for rescue. Why? Because they benefited from the situation. They were benefiting from the arrangement they had with the Romans. So they didn't see a need for God to send a Messiah to come rescue them. Now on the other hand, you have the other group of people, the Pharisees. They would be considered the theological conservatives, so to speak. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the entire Old Testament as scripture. And, and they, they were considered by the common people to be Israel's religious leaders. When they, when they thought of people theologically that were leading them, it was the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees represented the common Jewish religion at the time. Most people would identify themselves with the Pharisees in their form and understanding of Judaism. And so they were seen as God's representatives for the people on earth. And among this group of Pharisees were the smaller group of the scribes. And so what you need to understand is the scribes were Pharisees in their theology. But even more than that, they were the ones that defined that theology. They, they were the ones, they were the theologians of that entire group. They were the experts of the law that interpreted the text that supported what the Pharisees believed and their doctrinal understanding. You see, what most people believed is what they believed, right? They were the ones that drove the common kind of like theology and doctrine that everyone was, was holding on to. They, in essence, were, were Israel's theological leaders. This group of men had great power. Right? The common Jew believed what they believed because of what the scribes had done and the work that they had done. The common Jew's spiritual destination then Heaven or hell rested really within the hands of these teachers. And the reason why this is so important, the reason why the context is so important is because Jesus has just demonstrated that the scribes right, were completely wrong about an essential doctrine regarding the Messiah. They were completely wrong about an essential truth of what is required to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Please don't miss that. They were wrong about something that a person needs to know and understand and to believe about Christ. Because unless you believe that Christ is God in the flesh, unless you believe that the Messiah is Lord of all, you don't get in the kingdom. That's the implications. That's the thing that we have to see clearly and understand, unless you have a correct understanding of who Christ is, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. As we said a couple of weeks ago, you can be inches from the kingdom and still go to hell. As the, and the scribes, as we can see, got the nature of the Savior of all mankind wrong. You see, for all their scholarship, and all their education, and all their study, and all of their expertise, and all of their debating, right? they were wrong about the nature of the Savior. They were wrong about Jesus. They were wrong about what the Scriptures actually said and what they taught, which means they're not just teachers of the law. They are false teachers of the law. False teachers. Teachers pretending to be leading people to God who in fact were leading people to hell. That's the implication. And do you understand why this is so important? These people, these false teachers were leading the entire nation of Israel completely astray. In fact, more specifically, Jesus addresses this more clearly in this same event in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew actually expands on this a little bit more. He says in verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Notice he lumps them together. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow who would enter to go in. He's telling them, right? You don't lead people to heaven. You lead them away from heaven. You are getting in the way of people going to heaven. You're closing the door on them, is what Jesus is saying. 
And then he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He repeats the curse of them. For you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte or a single convert. And then he becomes a proselyte or a convert. You make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus is saying you're leading people to hell by your teaching. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew. The reason why Jesus says beware of these men, the reason why Jesus warns about these men is because they are false teaching teachers who are leading people to eternal damnation. These people are leading other people away from life and away from God because that's what false teachers do. They don't just speak to people in error. What they teach has dire consequences. That's why the Bible continually warns against false teachers. If there's something you'll see a repeated theme in, in the New Testament is a warning against false teachers. Peter himself says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, But false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, and even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter's making it very clear that there will be false teachers, and they will be hard to spot, and they will lead people astray. Then Paul says to Timothy, right, to the pastor Timothy, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted in, that you, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard that doctrine that you know to be true. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from their faith. False teachers lead people away from faith. Jude says this, he says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. You see, false teachers don't come in the door and announce themselves, hey, by the way, I'm a false teacher. They come disguised as orthodox believers, and then they insidiously begin to teach heresy. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for their condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God in, into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Even Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew warns, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. What Jesus is saying is that they're going to appear to be just like you. They're going to appear to be true. They're going to appear to be right. They're going to appear to be godly. They're going to appear to be men of God, but inwardly they, they will be deadly. They will be dangerous. And Jesus says they might even look pious. They might even look religious on the outside. But then he says, but you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. The healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. He's talking about teachers and false teachers here. And he says you're going to know them by their fruit. 
And so in this text in Mark, Jesus says to be aware of these men. And what he describes for us is these men's fruit. Because notice how they live. Notice how Jesus describes them. They live in opposition of the greatest commandment that Jesus just explained to one of the scribes. I mean, you would expect that a person who was serious about the law, who was a teacher of the law, who who wanted to lead people towards God would demonstrate the fruit of this fruit in their lives, the the fruit of, of God's greatest commandment. You would expect the teachers of the law would exhibit the evidence of their love for God and their love for their neighbor above themselves. Because Jesus said that's the summary of the law. And even the scribe said, you're right. So you would expect that their lives would lean at least in that direction. They, well, they might not be perfect, but at least you would expect that there was some kind of bearing that, that way. That they would be aligning their lives to the best of their ability to the greatest commandment. But that's not what we see in these men here as Jesus describes them. Not even close. Look what, how he describes them again. Now with that kind of perspective, see how Jesus, what he's saying here. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. This does not sound like a group of men who love God supremely above all other things. This does not sound like people who love their neighbor as themselves. No, not even close. Yet these men are the ones that all of Israel are looking to for guidance. These are the men that the common Jew were looking at and trusting in as as, as the spiritual leaders. Like, I'm going to listen to that guy because he's going to help me get where I need to go. These were the men who were the teachers of the law. And not only are they false teachers but they're clearly false teachers by the fruit in their life. Again, look what he says. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. What you need to realize is these men, these elites, could readily be identified in public by what they wore. You could, you could spot them a mile away. Right? They wore long white robes as a sign of their, their piety and, and purity. Right? Because the average person actually wore bright colors then. And so they would stand out like these radiant beings floating around among the rest of the people. But not only that, their robes were actually fashioned after the priestly garments that were used for temple work. You see, God had ordained how, how, how people were to serve him. And part of that, he told them, this is how you were to dress. This is how your garments are supposed to look and be designed. And so the clothes for these Self-important religious men were modeled after the priestly garments to give them credibility. They were to distinguish them from the common man. Right? That's, how, that's how these clothes were created. It wasn't because God said, hey, this is how I want you to, to dress these scribes. God never even said anything about them. Right? But they actually designed these after the, the priestly garments to, to give them prominence and to give them stature. The clothes were designed to set them apart from the crowd and make them appear more pious. There were uniforms, in essence, that were designed to make these men stand out and, and inspire respect and admiration. Right? It's all in outward appearances. By the way, that's what uniforms do, right? Like when you see a police officer in uniform, you think differently about that person when they're not. The same thing with a soldier, right? I mean, even my, my own son, like when, he, when I see him in his full class A dress, you know, dress, like I feel differently about him. I am inspired 
by all the stuff, all the hardware that he, that he has, right? Not to mention, I mean, and, and, and all of you know the same thing when you see a Marine in their, in their dress blues, right? I mean, you feel differently. I've got a nephew that's a Marine, the big goofy kid, but he puts that, that uniform on and like he's a different man altogether. That's what these clothes were meant to do. And these scribes, they loved looking the part. They did. They loved walking through the crowds with their clothes on. They loved the results of people, you know, greeting them. It says Jesus said they liked the greetings in the marketplace. The custom was that when someone greater than you in stature would walk by you or near you, you stopped what you were doing and you turned to them and acknowledged them and greeted them as a sign of respect to them. And these men loved wearing their priestly clothes that inspired people to pay attention to them in the marketplace. They loved people fawning on them. Again, it reminds me, I'll go back to last week, it reminds me of Don Fanucci in The Godfather Part Two when he's strutting around the, the streets of Brooklyn in his, in his white suit, all white suit with his white hat, and people are like shouting out to him, Don Fanucci, and he has this, this like very kind of like pious look on his face, and he gives him the back of his hand, you know? That's what I imagine this must have been like, that people love that kind of attention. And Jesus says, not only that, they, they like the best seats in the synagogue. This one's a weird one for me, by the way, okay? Because the scribes were given, a special, they were given special seats in the synagogue. And the seats were situated to where their back was against the chest that held the scriptures, which means they were facing the crowd as the, the word was being delivered and the prayers were being given. It'd be like me taking some chairs and placing them here in front of the pulpit so all the VIPs in the church could sit here and look out piously at the rest of you. That's kind of weird, right? But that's, that, that's what it was. They were in essence you know, in a place in the building where all the congregation were to look upon them and see them in their robes as they sat there with their I'm holier than you look on their face. Right? They were in essence the center of attention, Rather than God being the center of attention and his glory, it's about them. And, the, you know, it's like, look at these holy men. We should aspire to be like them. But there's more. Jesus said they like to place places of honors at feasts. The scribes expected to be invited to all the social gatherings. And if you were somebody prominent or wanted to be somebody prominent, then you better invite the, the scribes. Because they were part of the, the entourage that you had to have to make your party legitimate. Otherwise, you just really weren't, you know, in the in crowd. And not only did they expect to be invited, but they expected the seats of honor. They wanted to be, be placed as, as the most important guests in the room. If you remember, in Jewish society, it was always about your stature, right? And, and who, you were, who you were better than. And they, because they were the theological leaders of Israel, expected to be treated almost like royalty. These men loved the outward expression of their role. They loved the pomp. They loved the circumstances. They loved the perks that came with being a scribe. Why? Because it was about them. It was all about them. You see, it wasn't about God and his glory. It wasn't about their, their love for him. It was about their love for themselves, Right? They loved the respect. They loved the veneration. They loved almost being worshipped by the common man. They wouldn't say that they were being worshipped, but I would say that there was probably some form of idolatry going on there. They didn't love God with all their hearts. They loved themselves first. Right? And then they certainly didn't love their neighbor as themselves. Jesus said these men devour widows' houses 
and for a pretense make long prayers. Now, I've read several commentaries, and there are lots of opinions about exactly what this means. And let me just kind of give you the range, okay? Some think that, that, that basically these men accepted payment from widows as for, for legal aid and advice, which actually was against the law. They weren't supposed to do that. Some people say that these men cheated the widows in their roles as guardians uh, as their, of their husband's estates. I mean, because who better to, to, to trust with you know, your husband's estate than you know, a servant of the Lord, right? Some say that they were sponging off the hospitality of widows. Other people say that they mismanaged their estates. Uh, others say that you know, they would take money from these, these widows in exchange for prayers. They're like, so will you pray for my nephew? Well, that'll cost you. You know, I'll be happy to pray for you, but you know, nothing's free, right? And some people think that they would actually um, take the houses in collateral for these women and loan them money, and, and because they couldn't repay them, then they would actually have to then foreclose and kick the widows out. Now, there's a lot of theories about this, and I have found that there's actually a lot of historical support for all of these different ideas, and it might be a combination of some of these, right? Uh, so what exactly Jesus is referring to here is not clear, and I don't even think it's the point. The, the point is these men were obviously taking advantage of the weakest members of their society, the elderly widow. They were taking advantage of the weak. And if there is a group of people in the Bible that the Bible says that everybody needs to look out for and watch out for and take care of and do right by, it is the widow. The Old Testament is replete with, with admonitions and warnings to that effect. But these men use the widows to enrich themselves. They obviously did not love their neighbor as themselves. They loved themselves a whole lot more. These men were false teachers to the core. And the fruit of that was evident in their lives. And Jesus warns others about them, right? And then at the end of this last public teaching, the very last thing he says publicly is that he judges these men. He says, and they will receive the greater condemnation. And this right here is a sobering warning for the scribes. It's also a sobering warning for us as well. I think it's a sobering warning for anybody that goes into ministry. And it's a warning, I think, to anybody who wants to become a pastor I, I believe so. I see people all the time who know something about the Bible, but have no theological training whatsoever, who've never been actually ordained by, by another church or a group of people who have the authority to ordain them, who just simply adopt for themselves the title of pastor. They just decide, I'm a pastor. I've, you know, they have strong convictions. They even memorize a lot of scripture. Right? And, and, and they actually follow you know, somebody else's theological framework, but they really don't follow what the biblical Bible prescribes as church leaders, and they decide, I'm just a pastor, or I'm an evangelist, or I'm a, I'm a preacher, and they go into church leadership. I don't think there's anything more dangerous a person can do. It's a dangerous thing to do. Right? Because Jesus said the condemnation of those who are in, who, who are not in him is hell, right? But Jesus says that the false teacher, the person who leads others astray, has the greater condemnation. If you remember the whole bit about the millstone that we talked about, 
Right? That wasn't just about children. This was about leading people astray and causing people to sin. Jesus was saying in graphic detail, it would be a lot better for you if the worst kind of death would befall you than you do something like that. And Jesus is saying here that there is a greater condemnation that faces false teachers, which means, yes, hell is a nightmare for anyone. But for some reason, the Bible helps us to see that it's going to be worse somehow, if you can imagine that, for false teachers. It's going to be worse for false teachers. Those who teach and preach and lead God's people are held to a greater standard. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, offers a similar kind of warning. He said, many, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. This is a scripture that floats around in my head a lot. Whew, makes my heart heavy at times. Those who teach in the ministry are held to a higher standard because they, like the scribes, can lead individuals to, to, and even entire congregations into great spiritual danger. That's why this warning that Jesus offers here is so important. I want you to hear me. In fact, if there's anything you write down, this might be the one thing. One of the most dangerous forces in the entire world is a false teacher. I would say it's more dangerous than the coronavirus. And I'm not, I'm not overstating that. More dangerous than a wild pack of dogs, more dangerous than a category four hurricane, more dangerous than an 8.0 earthquake. We know about those kind of things here. I would even say it's more dangerous than a nuclear weapon going off. One of the most dangerous forces in the entire universe is the false teacher. Don't believe me? Think about this. Did you know that at this moment right now, the latest statistics that I can find, there are 16,565,036 members of the LDS Church right now in the world. 16.5 million. 16.5 million people who think right now that they are right with God because of what's been taught by the false prophet Joseph Smith. 16 and a half million people, not to mention all the people that have gone before them. 16 and a half million. These are people that we know and love. They believe that they're saved. They believe that they're in Christ. They believe that they are the one true church. But if they don't repent and believe the gospel, they are destined for torment. 16 and a half million of them. How about 8 million Jehovah's Witnesses? 8 million people hitting the streets all the time thinking they're doing the Lord's work by knocking on your door, irritating you, arguing with you, trying to give you that piece of paper. They think that they're right with God. They think that God is smiling upon their efforts. In fact, they think when you're rude to them that you're persecuting them, which is proof of the fact that they're right with God. Eight million people who will stand before Christ and he will look at them and say, away from me, I never knew you. But those are the ones that I think as Christians we tend to expect, because especially if you're an Orthodox believer. But right, we know, right, that they're not Christians. But what about the little group of people called the Oneness Pentecostals? They tend to get lumped into the entire group of Pentecostals. Why? Because some people think that all Pentecostals are the same, and it's, it's like it's not the truth. Like not all Baptists are the same. But they're still actually not 
Orthodox believers. Did you know that there are 24 million oneness Pentecostals in the world? 24 million. That's more than the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses combined. We're right at the, about the same number. 24 million. And by the way, this includes people from my own family. I mean, there are some people who were oneness Pentecostals with the last name of Burkhead in the United States. People that I know and love. 24 million. Now you might ask, well, why are you, what do you say they're not believers? Because they deny the Trinity. The foundational truth about the nature of who God is. That's why we sing holy, 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 right? God in three persons, blessed Trinity. They don't believe in the Trinity, which means they don't know who God is, which means they are bound for condemnation. All because of false teachers. False teachers are dangerous. But then again, think about this. Right now, there are one 0.8 billion, with a B, billion people who are followers of the Prophet Muhammad. 1.8 billion people who are Muslims. 1.8 people who think that they are God's special chosen people, who think that they are right with God, who are rushing towards oblivion. Even some of them are killing themselves in the service of their God. 1.8 billion. 1.2 billion Hindus as well. Between the, the, those two groups, it's 3 billion people. It's 40% of the world's population. Not to mention the 535 million Buddhists. These kind of numbers just stagger your imagination. The destructive force the most destructive force on earth is the false teacher. Do you realize how many people are headed to hell right now in this moment? People who think right now, I'm okay with God. People who have a false sense of assurance. But let's even get closer to home. 65% of Americans claim to be Christians. That's the latest statistics now, 65%. Actually, that's really down, and we see that there's a decline because more and more people are identifying themselves as non-affiliated. It used to be up in the 80s. Now it's down in the 70s. Now it's 65% of Americans. It's the majority of, of, of Americans claim to be Christians. And the majority of those Christians are evangelicals. So that what they do is they take Christians and they break them down into a lot of different groups. But the basic ones is evangelical or mainline Protestant or Catholic, right? Well, we're not Catholic and we're not mainline Protestant, so we fit in that evangelical you know, category. I wish there was a different category that they would use, but that's irrelevant. The fact of the matter is, is the group that we fit in, right? Evangelicals, that's the Baptist, that's the, that's the, you know, um, the Assembly of God, you know, Orthodox believing Pentecostals, that is your non-denominational churches. All of those groups of people make up the largest percentage of Christians in America, right? 19% of those people, 19% of those people think that there are many ways to heaven. 19%. It's almost a fifth of people who profess to be Christians, evangelicals, who would have a similar statement of faith to us, profess that there's more than one way to heaven. They're not Christians. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except by me. Right? We believe that you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way. If there was another way, Christ died for nothing. All of our theology implodes on itself. If there is another way, they're not 
Christians. Then there's 34% of evangelicals don't think that sex outside of marriage is a sin. Now, I don't think that this qualifies people from the kingdom of heaven to be struggling with their definitions of sin. I think maybe there's some issues there, but we'll give them that one, okay? Still kind of revealing. 51% of evangelicals believe that everyone sins, but people are good in their nature. I think that Maybe that doesn't disqualify them from the kingdom, but they certainly don't have a biblical view of mankind if that's what they believe, right? There's a lot of work to be done. But how about this one? 18% of evangelicals think the Bible is not literally true. I don't even know why you're a Christian if you, or, or claim to be a Christian, because I don't believe you're a Christian if you don't think that the Bible is true. If you don't believe that the Bible is true in the Word of God, then I don't think that you really have a leg to stand on except that you just want to be associated with a group of people. But here's the staggering one, okay? This is the one that ought to make you cry. This is the one that should should rip your heart out. 58%. That's nearly 60%. That's like almost two-thirds. 58% of evangelicals, those who claim to have beliefs similar to ours, Evangelicals, 58% of them think that the Holy Spirit is a force and not a person. Do you even understand what that means? That means 58% of people who claim to be evangelicals don't even know who God is. Because the idea of the Holy Spirit being a force is a heresy, an outright damnable heresy. It's a blatant, full-on denial of the Trinity. It's a denial of the very nature of who God is, which means by definition, not by what I think, but by definition, that 58% of professing evangelicals are false converts. They don't know Christ. They're not by definition. All classical definitions throughout history, they're not by definition Christians. And it's not me saying that. That's That's what the data says. I read that, I just, I, I, I can't even fathom that. My heart breaks at that. False teachers, even the well-intentioned people who think they're doing right and, and think that they're loving other people are the most destructive force in the entire universe. Because not only can they consign individuals to damnation, but entire communities and even entire denominations As, as the liberalism that has spread across our country has consumed entire mainline denominations. There are mainline denominations that have ministers who are atheists for crying out loud. It's a sobering reality that the vast majority, I want you to understand me, and this is not because I want to be doom and gloom, but the vast majority of people in the world today, right now, are hell-bound. The vast majority of the people in the world today do not understand who Christ is. Do we understand this reality? The vast majority of people on earth right now are destined for hell. And the number continues to grow, by the way. Prosperity preachers on TV who tell you that you can live your best life now are sending people to hell. Preachers who say that you can, if you just sow your seed so that they can buy their next airplane are sending people to hell right now. Slick-talking preachers who promise instant healing, who wear $10,000 suits, 
and live like royalty, driving around in Rolls Royces and having 100-acre compounds, saying if Jesus was here, he wouldn't ride a donkey. Those people are sending people to hell. Pastors who just want to be loved. Pastors who just want to be accepted and that will preach a man-centered gospel and a man-centered theology in order to just fill up the, 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 the church you know, pews are responsible for giving people false assurances and sending people to hell. And again, I'm going to repeat Albert Muller's words. He says, the church cannot remain faithful if it tolerates false teachers and leaves their teachings uncorrected and unconfronted. Brothers and sisters, the most destructive force in the world is not a corrupt government trying to control you. It's not the government trying to implant you with a chip against your will. That's not the most destructive force in the world. The most destructive force in the world is and will remain the false teacher among us. And the time has come for us to know what it is we believe, why we believe it, and boldly defend it and proclaim it. Even in the face of great opposition, even when our own government is trying to shut us down, people's lives and eternity stand in the balance. And that means that you, all of you, need to own your own theology. We need to own our theology because it matters. Theology matters. We all must become discerning. And let me just take you back to the words of Jesus here. He says, beware. It's the word beware that we get. It's actually from the Greek word that's translated blepo. Another one of the reasons why I like Blue Letter Bible is because you can find out what the Greek words actually say. It's blepo. And it means to see, to be observant, watchful. It also suggests something physical with, with spiritual results. It's, it's perception. It's the idea right behind, you know, the idea behind this word is to be alert, to be discerning of spiritual things. And as Christians, that's what we're called to be. We're called to be discerning. We're called to have spiritual eyes so that we can see so that we don't fall prey to the false teachers, but more importantly, so we can gently correct those who have fallen prey to false teaching, and that we can also then firmly rebuke and correct those who are engaging in false teaching, because false teaching and false teachers are sending people to hell, people that you know and people that you love. Now hear me. I'm not saying we need to be jerks because we don't have to be. And, and there are people in so-called discernment ministries who write scathing reports on everybody and their brother and always have the most hateful things to say. I'm not saying we need to be jerks about, you know, standing for the truth. And I'm not saying that everybody who, who, who sees things differently in some minor areas is a heretic. We don't have to have complete agreement on every little detail. What I am saying, though, is there is a core truth to the Christian faith that a person must believe and get right to be saved. It's a core that we need to know. It's a core that we need to understand. It's a core that we, that we need to be able to defend. Things like who God is, the sovereign king of the universe, that he is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is essential to your faith. The divinity of Christ and his humanity as well. How about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works? It's essential to your faith. How about the inerrancy of Scripture or the literal and physical nature of the resurrection? If you don't believe that Jesus actually rose from the grave, 
you don't know who he is. These are some of the essentials that must be believed to be saved. And I believe that it's our responsibility to know these things and to be to beware of false teachers. That is what we are all called to do. We as a church are the pillar and the buttress of the church. We are to declare and defend the truth. So then you might say, okay, Sherman, Mr. Smarty Pants, how do we do that then? How do we position ourselves to recognize false teachers and false teaching so we don't fall prey to it? And how can we help other people not to fall prey for it, to it? Well, I believe there are three foundations you need to build and establish all of your life on. Three foundations. I think three things that you must have in your life in order to discern the difference between a false teacher and a true teacher. And I think what you must have is, number one, a high view of God, Number two, a high view of Scripture. And number three, a clear understanding of the gospel. At a minimum, I think that's what you have to have. I think that those, that's the solid foundation you have to build on. When I say a high view of God, what I mean, we have to understand, we have to begin with the understanding that God is completely holy, righteous, and good, and He's completely different from us. And that God gets to define Himself. We don't define Him. That God is who He is, not who we make Him out to be. I think that's a foundation of everything else we need to believe. And everything that he, he does and everything that he is is for his glory. That's the high view of God. And the only way that we can understand God is for God to reveal himself to us through his scriptures, his word. That's why we need to have a high view of the scriptures. And when I say to have a high view of scripture, we must just come to the place where we understand that the Bible is his word. It is theonustos. It is his word. And as such, it is infallible. It is inerrant and is completely sufficient for salvation. And that we allow the word of God to speak for itself. We talked about this last week. We allow the word of God to speak for itself. We take our men-centered theologies and our preconceived ideas and we set them aside and we come to the text and we allow the scriptures to speak to us and to teach us about who God is and who we are and what God has done for us and what God expects out of us. And then finally, I think we need to have a clear handle on the gospel, which is the truth about who God is, what he has done for us through Jesus Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves. It is the good news of that. That's the foundational things I think that we need to lay. A high view of God, a high view of Scripture, and a clear understanding of the gospel. If you have that, I believe firmly, then you'll be able to see much more clearly when someone's teaching false doctrine. So how do we develop that foundation? I mean, how do we build that in our own lives? Well, practically speaking, it's always the same answer. Time in the Word. You're not going to build that foundation. You're not going to know who God is without time in the Word. You need to read the Word, study the Word, meditate on the Word, make the Word part of your life in every possible conceivable fashion that you can. You need to be people who are of the Word all the time, people of the book. You also need time in prayer with God, asking God to do the part that He can do. Open my eyes to the truth. Open my eyes to the scriptures. Reveal to me what I need to see. Help me to see false doctrine. Help me to see false truth. Only you, Lord, can help me to see those things. We also need time and worship together. Corporate worship together. We need each other. We need each other's prayers. We need each other's support. We need each other's guidance and admonition. And as a church collectively, 
we need to be able to hold each other to the same theological standard. Which then leads to number four, is you need to study the statements of faith and confessions that we say that we hold to. These doctrinal statements are important. Now you can go all the way back to the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed, and those are awesome. We here at this church have as our statements of faith, the Southern Baptist faith and message, the 2000 uh, Southern Baptist faith and message. I personally am reading and, and, and adhering to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Right? What we need to do is take these kinds of documents that faithful men have, have written that re- represent what the core teachings are of the Christian faith throughout history. We need to study them article by article and ask the question, do I really believe that or do I not? And why or why not? We need to continually be diving in and understanding what we know about who who God is and who we are. And we need to continually, number five, continually rehearse the gospel. You need to preach the gospel to yourself all the time. You need to remind yourself of the good news of who God is and what he has done for you in Christ that you couldn't do for yourself. So that, number one, you can help yourself get through difficult times because you're going to fall into sin and you're going to need to remind yourself of the gospel. Otherwise, you'll tend to fall into legalism. Or you also need to be able to preach that gospel to other people. But having that gospel fresh in your mind will help you to see when somebody's preaching not the gospel. Now, you might say to me, Sherman, well, that's a lot of work. I'm not called to be a theologian. Well, you're right and you're wrong. You're right because it is a lot of work. You're wrong because you are absolutely, without question, called to be a theologian. You're a kingdom of priests. You're expected to know your theology. The Bible makes it clear. You're expected to grow in your knowledge of God. You're expected to make disciples of all the nations. You're expected to give everyone an answer for the hope that's in you, which by definition means that you are called to be a theologian. Because either you know your theology and you know what you believe and why you believe it, or you believe somebody else's theology and you're taking their word for it that what you're learning from them isn't a false theology. That's just the bottom line truth. More than that, the God that rescued you from the greatest catastrophe known to man He, because of his grace, killed his own son on the cross to pay a penalty that you could not pay. And more than that, Christ's righteous life gets applied to you as if it's your own by faith so that when you stand before God, you can stand unashamed, perfected because of him and what he has done for you. And because of that, you have a hope that can never be taken away from you. And God did all of this by his grace, and all you do is receive it by faith. Is that God not worth the time and the effort it takes to get to know him? Is that God not worth the time and the love and devotion it takes to grow in your understanding of him and to be able to defend your belief in him? Is he not worth it? But how about this? Are your friends and your family members and your neighbors not worth the time it takes for you to be able to help them to know the truth and not fall prey to false teachers? Are they not worth it? Your God is absolutely worth it. And your friends and your family and your neighbors are absolutely worth it. That's why the summary of the law is to love God above all things and love your neighbor as yourself. Now the good news is 
before you feel intimidated by all this. You don't have to learn all this in one day. It's not something that you have to get a master's degree in right now, which, by the way, I'm still working on. Okay? All you need to do today is commit to learning and understanding who God is. Right? That's what you're committing to today, is committing to saying, I will know my theology. I will understand what I believe and why I believe it. And I'll begin that process. And I'm committing to that today. So my question for you as we wrap up is, will you then commit to that today? You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.